0: I just think we have this jive amongst us as leaders, as a company, where we just know that's the direction we got to go, and we trust that.
1: I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Lead Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Moila, and today I have Landon Cooley on the show. Landon, thanks for coming on.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Landon, I've enjoyed seeing your presence in the industry. You've showed up here one, two, two years ago, tops.
0: Yeah, I've been uh April of 2021. Narpen broker owner was our first national
1: conference and you have leaned in aggressively you've made a lot of relationships connections i've enjoyed getting to know you and he, well, I want to hear a little bit about your story and i want to start with your entrepreneurial background sure where were you first exposed to entrepreneurship how is it that for you that that became an option on the menu of life choices to choose so
0: yeah something unique about me so obviously we're involved in the pest control industry i'm actually fourth generation a fourth generation pest control business owner so currently there are three generations of Coolies owning pest control companies, all separate companies too. And so my grandpa is in his late 80s, still lives in Southern California, still has a small one-man show operation. My dad has a a good size, respectable size business as well in Southern California. And then outside of PestShare, my business partners and I, Justin, Tom, many people know, we own a traditional pest control company as well uh, in Boise, Idaho. And so we've, uh, so I, man it's just bred into me i think we i think back my first job was at qdoba mexican grill my one of my best friends is that owned the franchise and my dad really wanted me to experience just a traditional interview for the job get the job we did it part-time during sports through the summer and then not long after i remember i remember uh and at least in california it was back then it was common to have uh house numbers on the curbs and I remember I started a little business. and put flyers up in people's doors. They would tape them on their mailbox as a sign of, I want you to paint my repaint my numbers on my curb. Um, I did that, and uh, it wasn't too long after I started working in my dad's company, and uh, I just, you know, I'll, I'll say this. At a certain point in my life, some of the best advice I've ever got from a guy, I didn't even know, can't remember his name. I um, hit a point where I was really considering like going to college and considering what do i want to do pest control was very much so on the list of options and there was this path that i was seeing, in which i could go and ultimately own my own company and do what my dad did but i was like do i really want to do that you know i looked at my cousins other family members hadn't done that siblings and this guy told me you know it's not about what you do it's about playing your best hand and that just hit me and i thought I'm going to play my best hand, which is definitely this pest control gig. And so we, um, so yeah, I mean, that just cascaded into numerous experiences and owning businesses involved in different things. But uh, I think really kicked me into, started to kick off my entrepreneurial spirit for sure.
1: Now, I don't know anything about running a pest control company. So I'd like to find out, tell me, what is it like running a pest control company for those of us that don't have that exposure?
0: Yeah, it's, a lot like a property management company. There's tons of parallels. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a traditional industry. It's been around for a long time. It's absolutely a, a necessity for a lot of uh, other industries and for people. Um, so yeah, like in a traditional pastoral company, you have service technicians that go out into the field every day. They run service routes and go to either people's homes or businesses and perform professional pest control treatments. And so there's a there's a good balance of um, like a good balance of traditional labor dynamic but also with a level of professionalism um, there's a lot of regulation and compliance involves licenses and so it's um so yeah when i look at property management i see a lot of parallels in that regard there's definitely a lot of red tape that i think keeps competition out allows price points to stay relatively high again keep it a professional service um, it's you know we we call it the a recession proof business it's not sexy it doesn't boom when things are crazy but it definitely does not fall off the map either when things get rough and so we've always loved in that regard and um produces recurring revenue which is great so it's uh yeah it's grown way more competitive over the years i think that's what led us you know partially what's led us down this road with past share of just being innovative and creative and kind of staying in our in our lane with pest control but um overall we have a, a great company in idaho that's a uh, lead competitor in that market, um, awesome team running it, and uh, it's always been a, a great business for us.
1: So pest control tends to work on a recurring revenue basis as opposed to one-off billings?
0: Yeah, yeah, so there's a couple different sides to it. I'd say on um, like the urban residential side, um, traditionally people will sign up for a quarterly service plan. Yep, yeah, and that's like a routine exterior service typically focused on more general pests with what we call them. So like spiders, uh, ants, like more nuisance pests, um, s- many different segments of the industry. You have, um, you know, the commercial pest side, which is, uh, you know, this hotel or whatever you, yeah, every commercial building out there typically has pest control, which is a very different approach, but similar recurring in nature. And then, um, then yeah, you get in, typically get into a, a side of it as well that is more of done on a one-time basis. And so when you're dealing with certain types of pests, like take bed bugs, for example, um, that treatment is done. It, it's really can't be prevented. You have to wait for something to occur. And so um, it's a very technical um, multi-step process, multi-step treatment that you go through to handle something like that. So you kind of get this other dynamic of services that comes up as well that are more on an as-needed, one-time basis.
1: And what are the adjacencies? What is, like, this random example, but what's the difference between pest control versus rodent removal?
0: Yeah, so we really kind of put them all in the same bucket. I mean, in pest control, you have insect control, you have rodent control, you have termite control, kind of is another segment of that, a wildlife removal. So um, there's several different, um, yeah, segments of, of the industry. Not all companies do everything. Some companies only do residential general pest control like insect control maybe they'll do a little bit of rodent control for that but and then you have some that are are very robust I mean they specialize in all these different areas and have different teams I'll say that about our company we own in in Idaho it um, have several different teams that have people that specialize we do some uh, ornamental services as well for like lawn care and stuff like that so um, so yeah every company is a little different some are more Diversified than others. But I, and there's merit in whatever approach you decide to go to. A lot of successful companies that only stay in one segment, really.
1: In every industry, there is knowledge asymmetry between the service provider and the consumer. For me, if I go to the mechanic and they tell me I need a new transit, a new transmission, I can't QA that. I can get a second opinion, but. I am not going to go look under the carriage. And if I did, there would be nothing for me to see Yeah. for the service providers that you're talking about with pest control. How would I know if somebody's ripping me off and spraying lemon juice around (laughs) my house versus the real thing?
0: You know, unfortunately it's a, it can, it's a concern. I will say this though. I'd say that's a very natural concern. We get a lot of like, are you just spraying water, you know? (laughs) And like, and, and the really, I've always been impressed with, um, the pastoral industry just holds a high standard. And I think part of it is the regulation, state regulation that gets put upon us that just makes us innately be more professional. But um, there's very specific label guidelines for every product we use. There's extensive documentation process we have to go through for everything we use. Um, And so I think in all that, I think it's made, uh, it's just made uh, the companies of the industry really focus on offering good service and being professional and so with that though yeah like that is a hard thing like say they come spray your house you can't typically see it and there's really no obvious sign i mean sometimes maybe they swept the spider webs down or something like there or uh they put out a, a bait station for rodents there's a few things you can see but you can't see most of the products being applied and really it just comes down to well what's your experience is that problem you give it Thirty days, sixty days—did the problem go away, or is it still popping back up? And you have to kind of gauge it that way. But unfortunately, we've seen it at times where guys are being cheap. The products aren't aren't cheap, and so they uh, will, you know, mix really low ratios that aren't effective, or something like
1: that. But or, in general, yeah. when somebody's coming to your house, they're not spraying the Landon Cooley special. It's a regulated uh, substance and product that they're using to spray. One hundred percent.
0: Yeah, the. I always say the last 50 years, the pastoral industry has been very focused on the science side versus the technology side. I think we're starting to catch up on the tech side, but the science of the products we use is incredible. I mean, we're mixing one ounce with several gallons of, of water of, you know, one ounce of pesticide, and it has the ability to, and the residual effect to keep pests away or kill certain pests. While um, needing to be safe. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if we get that all the time is a safe it's like not even i mean we have to be careful absolutely obviously these things are all you know uh, concentrations when we're mixing them and so exposure to high volumes concentration could be a, a problem but um yeah i mean nowadays with the amount of regulation in this industry uh, yeah absolutely safe i would spray in my house with my kids with a baby or something like that in a second wouldn't even think twice about it obviously take certain precautions but um it, it really has become a very safe industry in terms of how we do it
1: now these uh, treatments are expected to be binary in terms of effect there were bugs now there need to not be bugs right like sure. a little bit of bugs or a little less bugs isn't really acceptable for for interior anyway but on the exterior what about mosquito treatments is that real is that a thing yeah is that is that is that legit what's that what's the reasonable efficacy that could be promised
0: so i like that reasonable efficacy i think is you know it's I think we really work hard to try to establish people of realistic expectations. That's what we say, and the um, because the reality is we are dealing with bugs. They have brains. They have natural instincts, and they and their own right uh, intelligence. They've learned to survive too. And so, take ants for example. They build colonies underground. So we are trying to deal with something that is living underneath your house and coming up through the dirt. That's you can't. They're not just going to walk through something on the outside. And so. Um, yeah, or, or like mosquitoes is a great example. So I, I would say this, there's a real es- realistic expectation to be had with any treatment done. Um, there's absolutely certain types of treatments that are very effective. I mean, within maybe it takes multiple treatments or a certain period of time of repeated treatment or whatever, um, but we can absolutely make stuff go away. And. I'd say for the most part, the realistic expectation we like to set is that of planet being dramatically better, especially in terms of something on the outside like mosquitoes. Um, there's very effective treatment for spe- for mosquitoes, but like you got to treat the nesting site, which is usually stagnant water or um, uh, foliage, which could be on your property or your neighbor's property or the park down the street. And so it's um, sometimes things are out of your control and you really just start trying to make it better. And I think that's a, probably a good expectation for most of the just should be, it should be notably better for sure.
1: So I think anybody at home listening to this is clear now that, you know, your chops and you have the, the, um, background, you have the, the track record to really deeply understand the pest control industry. But this, this jump that you've made with pest share, this is a non-trivial leap. It's great that you have that background, but, Pretty rare in general for folks to go from being a service provider to wanting to do something that is dramatically more complicated, dramatically more surface area. What was the inspiration for getting into PestShare? What did you think you were getting into, and what has it morphed into?
0: Yeah, you know what I love about PestShare is it came about from property managers. It it just naturally developed out of requests because of certain pain points for pest control and property management, which I think is like think of all the times I've sat around trying to come up with business ideas, you know, and it's like, really, I think there's something powerful there. That's the way it should be. And um, yeah, you know, back in, I started getting involved with NARPM, and um, it had to have been about 2012, 2011, 2012, as a local in our local Southwest Idaho chapter as a vendor. Um, and along that journey, I met people like Jim and Melissa Sharon. Um, I'm not going to try to rattle them all off. We've so many good friends through over the years that we developed there. But yeah, we started to meet a lot of people and um, we were just kind of their go-to pest control vendor. And uh, we, so 2018, I found the email between Jim Trone and I recently (laughs) of where we really nailed down what is still kind of the standing concept of PestShare. And so this was November, end of November of 2018. And you know, leading up to this, um, they, along with a few others, had reached out and were like, you know, we've got this problem in property management. We do a lot of pest control work orders. And um, the, you know, the lease says the tenant's responsible for pest control, yet there's all these scenarios where that doesn't really work. And um, we, at the same time, resident benefit programs started to mm-hmm. become more and more of a thing. And so that's really where it began. It was like, can we take these specific pain points, these really specific pests that seem to cause most problems? We're not... They can live with the occasional spider. We're not trying to solve those problems. It's like bedbugs and cockroaches or fleas. Um, even ants can be really, you know, impactful on your health and welfare you know, within your home. And so, um, how do we find a solution for that? And can we make it into like an amenity that we put into our resident benefit program? We think they'll have, hold a lot of value. And um, we tried. All sorts of crazy stuff <laughs> and I, the first thing we tried was um, just volume discounted quarterly recurring services and we ran that for a while and it just didn't work it was not solving the really the pain points it quarterly recurring just preventative treatment on the outside of the home isn't gonna really stop your cockroaches it's definitely not gonna stop bed bugs even fleas and most of those things are brought into the home and so um we tried that it was still too expensive to fit into a resident benefit program even at the discounted rates and it just wasn't effective and so we uh that's when we started spinning around on ideas of like okay what if it was like a co-op what if everyone pitched in small subscription amounts and we could use those those subscription fees to cover very expensive services that's kind of where the idea uh the name Pesher came from sharing the cost is uh, where it started and so um and yeah then it just started to go and the tech opponent started coming and it yeah <laughs> here we are i guess but it um yeah it all started with uh tons of support from our local narpum chapter we still have tons of support just we'll always be involved and have a big IOU with those people in Southwest Idaho, NARPUM chapter.
1: <laughs> yeah, you always remember where you come from. Oh yeah. I wanna hear more about the specifics of the offering though. For me as a consumer, if I am in a home, from a resident in a home that is managed by a professional residential property manager, and that residential property manager engages as the services of PestShare, how would the outcome for me as the customer be different than the experience that I may have for somebody that is not in that kind of a setup or arrangement?
0: Absolutely. So essentially, what will happen is you'll come in through your onboarding experience or your renewal experience. You're going to learn about your resident benefit program and uh, naturally any changes that have happened to it, or if it's new, you'll be told about it. And then that's when we educate you on what pest sure is and that you have this pestle amenity to you for on demand pest control services. There's uh, certain coverage that's included with that, that's dictated by the property manager. We have multi tiered packages, um, some that are, are less extensive, some that are very extensive, again, that are just typically left at the discretion of the property manager, depending what region they're in or what they think's most fitting. So as um, a resident, you can come in, you're you know, educated on that naturally. And then, yeah, I mean, throughout your experience, I'll actually kind of tell a story. I, I'm currently building a home, so we're, we're renting right now. Coincidentally, there's a house that propped up in our neighborhood where we just sold a home and it is a past share client. And so we are, currently renting, we pay a resident uh, benefit program and we pay for pest share as part of that program. And when we moved in, we had, uh, you know, within the first week, we noticed ants in the garage and in the master bathroom. And so it, I've actually lived this now and, Essentially what happens is right on your mobile phone, you can go to pestshare.com. Um, it's a really simple process where you go through our software, you give us you know, your most uh, up-to-date contact information, your address, we're connecting that on the back end with the door data we have within the software. Um, you tell us what pest issue you're experiencing, provide a description of that pest issue. The whole process is probably takes less than a couple minutes. And on the back end, our software's connecting all the dots, saying this is with xyz property management this is an activated door um yep ants that's part of their standard coverage and uh so as that goes through if it's a covered pest it's no cost to the resident we create a work order we dispatch that work order to our local service provider in the area and we pay for professional service to be done
1: and this model that you're describing the share model, the first thing that comes to mind for me, just from a business perspective, that construct is built off of assumptions about a rate of consumption from consumers, et cetera. What if we have a, a weevil scourge yeah. in a given part of the country? How do you, how do you think through that kind of actuarial model and its implications?
0: Yeah. And all transparency, I think there's some things to be learned in that regard, but we've put, I mean, so 2018 is when we began really deep diving in and looking at these things of like, bypassed what could we include? And then that research started to expand out to, well, what are weevils like in Florida? You know, like we live in Idaho. In fact, Idaho of all markets is probably not the best way to come up with this idea. But we, uh, no, we, so I, there's probably a couple things I could say on that. Um, on one hand, we've done extensive research. And yeah, there could be some catastrophic, infestation of something but in you know historically speaking that's really not doesn't typically happen and um most infestation rates or occurrence rates if you want to call them uh, on the individual pest are, are relatively consistent actually across all markets of course i call it the like southern quarter of the country that is uh you know Got a unique pest control problems in terms of roaches or ants. Think of Florida, Texas, um, making way through those southern states. But the other upper three quarters are really actually pretty similar in terms of what's common and what's not. And so, um, so yeah, I'd say we've been very uh, pointed in what we include and what we choose not to include. And then we try to back that up against, uh, you know, really our client is the property manager. Our focus is providing excellent. Resident experience, but there's a a fair, reasonable balance to be had between what does our client need and what are they willing to deal with price point wise, and then while providing a valuable experience to the resident. And so through that lens, that's where we come and start to say, well, what are the pain points? Yeah, like roaches, for example, that's a big one in this industry. No one, it's bad news as a property manager you move and have roaches left by the previous tenant, and A lot of pain points spiral out of that. And so. um, So, yeah, that's really when we when it comes to what we include and don't include, that's really our focus versus. I hate spiders, I mean, let's say spiders, for example, a lot of people hate spiders and um, and we have options for that for sure. But that's not necessarily the first best we think of, of like what causes the most pain points in property management.
1: One of the key axioms being a vendor in this space is choosing whether or not you will commit to working exclusively with residential property managers versus direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. How are you guys thinking about that? What's been your experience thus far? Do you plan to stay working with professional PMs? Is there any consideration of potentially having a direct to consumer offering as well?
0: Yeah, so I think it's fair to be said that um, the way in which we offer pest control is extremely unique. No one's done it before. We've made made this up. And so, um, looking through the lens of the pastoral industry industry as a whole, um, the pastoral industry only serves fifteen percent of U.S. residents, and yet uh, eighty-six percent of U.S. residents have an experience of pest infestation every year. And so there's a big gap there. And we think really with what we're offering, it's unique. It's, it's not recurring service. It's on-demand service that's very tech forward, that provides quick access to service, but allows us to offer cheaper price points and get really the same end result. And so it, through that lens, we absolutely think that Pesher could have a place in a direct-to-consumer model where we could really bring a new offering to the pastoral industry and open up a new market segment in the pastoral industry as a whole. With all that being said, we are hyper-focused on property management. And even more so, I'd say, in SFR, we have absolutely support multifamily clients. And we have some HOA stuff kind of spinning up as well. Um, but in terms of marketing, in terms of what conferences we go to, it's very SFR-focused. And over the you know, next 10 years, we really don't see ourselves straying too far out of that. And so starting to play some ideas in terms of like upgrade options for tenants that they could pay direct for, which we may or may not run through the general ledger of the product manager or just charge directly but all that will be driven by what's the best thing for our client versus just what's the best thing for us and so um, so yeah I don't I think it would be I don't think it'd be truthful to say that we're not interested in looking at direct consumer we just think that, trying to access that now will hinder our growth. We think we really have a place in property management specifically.
1: And what is the, in the best interest of your client? What is the offering for your client? When the client is looking at and considering working with PestShare, this is what, a greater, greater coverage, greater, um, QA on the actual end user for the tenant. This is a revenue op. What is the totality of what clients or of what professional PMs are getting from this offering?
0: Absolutely, it's a major value driver in resident benefit programs or uh, investor owner benefit programs. That's starting to become more of a thing on the scene, and we absolutely have clients using it there as well. And so, I think that's the big thing. It's um, Major value driver there absolutely enhances resident experience, which we know trickles off to several benefits for for the investor, for the PM, for everybody. Um, you know, the other side of this is our software is is one of which is meant to be plugged in and not to require the property to interact with. It, our our uh, you know, thought on this is we we see that Pestrel is not this major pain point. It's a it's just a part of maintenance and Honestly, even compared to like HVAC, for example, it's really not that big of a pain point in terms of maintenance. And so our approaches on this is, how can we just take this off their plate? What what can we do from a technology perspective with our team and our resources to make it so, it can be plugged in resident benefit program, it can generate significant uh, ancillary revenue for them through that program. And then we can just kind of take this annoying thing away and enhance resident experience. And so I'd say we that's what it is designed to do, it does it well. Um, we are seeing uh, overall price points resin pivot programs going up dramatically with our clients and the overall um, the the wholesale rates at which we offer our product to our clients are of such that they can still um, you know include their fees on top of that and have a it still be significantly discounted compared to industry standard pricing for similar pastoral services and so, Um, But but that's our big focus. Absolutely had a lot of traction in the resident benefits space. Um, Tons of happy tenants that leave Google reviews and on our our clients' Google pages. And um, I'd say more and more as our tech grows, we're leaning into that and saying, okay, how do we just offload more and more and just deliver information as they need it, however they want to receive it?
1: Now, you still own your existing pest control business, correct? Correct. And is that business doing well? Is it profitable, et cetera?
0: We have a rock star team that runs that business. Uh, Justin, Tom, and I own that. We're co-founders together in Pesher as well. We own that company as well. It's called PestCom. It's in Idaho. Um, and yeah, those guys are, are unsung heroes. They're keeping the business growing at res- you know a respectable rate. I mean, right now is an awful time for service companies. Inflation is just killing us and so but despite that they've grown they've, they've been really responsible of how they run the business and have allowed us to stay focused over here
1: so in light of that why go through all this trouble Landon why why not just keep running that business why not expand in multi-market you knew it you understood it it's in your blood why
0: I can't I just can't not is <laughs> about my I say this on behalf of of us really our whole team it's Um, but for me and just Tom as, as co-founders, it is ingrained in our DNA and to just always be pushing. And I I think as I look back at when we were having those early day conversations about, about share and, um, I, n- I will say this, I never thought it would come to this. I, I mean, if someone told me, hey, by 2022, you'll be sitting here doing this, I'd be, someone told me a year ago, you'd be sitting where you are. I would just be like, no way. And the I specifically remember having a conversation. Um, I was driving away uh, from a client's office. We were exploring these ideas of yeah, it was 2019. And I remember talking to one of our employees at the time. So I'm like, yeah, this is a cool concept. I think it'll be a really good like market-specific property management program, I, I mean, it could totally go national. I just don't think we ever will. And, um, and so Justin Justin and Tom, they're brothers. They're, uh, you know, we'll make a little side story with this, but um, when this very first started, I started rolling around these ideas. Um, we weren't business partners. They were competitors of mine in our local market. And long story short, we ended up merging our businesses. And that was right about, this is 2020, it's right about when we started to have a lot of traction with PestShare, share and I will be the first to say, I would have never, ever gone this level on my own. They are, I think the visionary in me and the drive in me just can't not chase it, but they are the backbone behind me that really make it work. And so we're absolutely an incredible, uh, trio together. But, um, yeah, at the end of the day, love, love the pestle industry. I think, um, our company's great we have a lot of plans for that our traditional pastoral co- pest company pascom but um something like this and the innovation that is needed the pain points that are there it's just something we can't turn away from so <laughs> here we are <laughs>
1: One of the things that I like and appreciate about you is that you have that SMB blood in your background and in your DNA, as opposed to that finance background or that Wall Street background. There's a lot of backgrounds that you can use as a staging ground for becoming a successful entrepreneur, but SMB is what I know. It's what I deeply relate to. It defines my commitment to this segment because I'm aware of the impact, the disproportionate impact I can make for good or for bad. The reality is if you're selling as a vendor into a Fortune 500 company, whatever Whatever you're selling, it's not going to tank the company, it's not going to make the company dramatically more successful. It's going to have a nominal impact that's diluted by the size. In SMB world, you can really have a big impact and you get to see and face and meet the people and in some cases the families that are also impacted. That gives me a lot of satisfaction. So as you think about this segment and these people that you're getting to work with, I have to imagine that that has informed the go-to market strategy, which is a fancy way of saying the sales and marketing plan that you execute. You've come into this industry fairly fast, fairly relational, built a ton of relationships, a lot of goodwill and rapport what was your thinking? What was driving your approach there? Walk me through that that side of things. I just think it really just came natural for us. We are people, people at our core. We're small
0: business people really is our background. And we have a lot in common with our target market here. And um, we've walked in their shoes in many ways. And um, I think... At the end of the day, I think that's one of our biggest advantages. I I read a really interesting article. I think it was a Forbes article about um, non-technical co-founders and the advantages, disadvantages of non-technical versus technical co-founders. We have a huge tech component to our company. I am not a software developer either, or Justin and Tom. And
1: I could have guessed that anyway. Big surprise. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) either
0: (laughs) we're pest control guys. And, but we have extensive backgrounds also in sales and marketing, um, just Tom, I have a unique background in psychology as well, I have degrees in that. And so we, uh, I think like ultimately our approach is naturally be very um, marketing, sales driven, people driven, uh, service driven. And um, we've absolutely had to go and recruit that tactical talent to help us along the way with the technical component. And so, but I think as in terms of just, when I look back at, um, you know, again, April 2021 broker owner, I remember walking into the trade show hall, and it was just like, after you know the first day, it was like, okay, I know what we're gonna do with this thing. <laughs> These are my people. <laughs> <laughs> this is our this is our people. We know how they think. We know. I think a huge advantage for us is we're just so unique. I mean, um, the resident benefit space is kind of an up and up thing. It's a big thing right now, but um, professional home service is unique as an offering from vendors on a national level. Uh, pest control no one was really doing pest control in the space and so we've absolutely uh leaned in those things to try to create a spotlight for ourselves. and um but i'd just say from the most genuine parts of us as a company like we love our customers and our people we want to see them succeed even if it's just handling the bugs you know and so we um the financial impact we can drive the revenue opportunity we can drive is notable it's I think it's leading in the space for the type of services we do. And, uh, if that's how we contribute, then we're willing to do it. And the relationships are just a pleasure. That's all icing on the top for us.
1: Landon, who do you learn from? One of the things that's notable about starting a company and being in a startup phase in general, particularly when you're leaving SMB world and going into tech, is that there are no rules. There is no handbook. You're figuring it out. It is all made up fundamentally. Nobody told you to do this. Nobody said, Landon, here's the opportunity. If you just execute these things, you come up with the concept, you're on your own to build it. Gratefully you have co-founders. I've loved that privilege as well. But how have you been focused on gaining the knowledge and the skills that you need to figure this out along the way?
0: Yeah, man, that has been a wild journey. I uh I naturally get pretty obsessive with whatever I'm doing. I'm just very driven and I go all in really quick once I just in my heart feel like this is where I need to go. Um, so I'm a big hunter. I, I like hunting, I like fishing, love the outdoors. My wife and I both and our kids. Um, every morning, let's see, fast forward a year and a half, two years ago, whatever, I go to the gym, I put in my AirPods or whatever, and I listen to hunting podcasts and I'm Obsessed with. I dive in every nook and cranny. And I, as this has all come about, as Pasture's come about, that has quickly shifted to property management podcasts. This quickly shifted to uh, venture back to tech startup podcasts. Um, it's a SaaS related podcast. I have just immersed myself in it. And, but really, I would say the some of our best decisions. Um, ideas have come from things we learn from you. It's from the industry. It's people on shows like this. I We're listening every day, trying to stay up and up and, and really feel what they're feeling. And um, what are those pain points? We're, what's the best angle for us and how do we help them? And so, yeah, I mean, I personally have just, I obsessively have just thrown myself into this. And I think in time, I've hit an interesting point now where the business is changing. We're growing at a rate. We we had us three co-founders and three employees on January 1, and we have probably over 30 people now. We're about 30 people. And so we've um, just, which is the biggest company I've owned. I mean, that or ran or managed or anything. And so uh, the learning curve of what I need to focus on has dramatically changed. And so I'm starting to see, see this shift for sure. And, and as an executive team, what we focus on, but I still listen to numerous podcasts just like everyone else on a regular basis to just always know what's the latest thing in the industry and make sure we're on top of it.
1: What ideas have you had to shed along the way? What's a thought you were committed to, gave you joy, was something you could really lean on as a core concept that you've realized wasn't actually serving you anymore and that you've had to replace with an upgraded thought?
0: Uh, I naturally go to the people component. I just think um I no one what's the best way to put this. No one likes making major decisions based on just feeling alone and no one likes to just trust that it will be okay when you're talking about lots of money or major decisions. I, I think one thing that has me in awe as I look at our journey so far is that, and I don't know, maybe I'm not totally answering your question, but kind of it's just what comes to mind that I think is important is um, of all the things I've studied, of all the weaknesses I have that I've realized, like, wow, I will never be that good at that. I think the thing that has allowed us to be successful that will forever make us successful is just that we we have a really good sense of feeling of, direction we should go in, and we trust that. And um, even very, very big decisions. And we're really uh, people-focused, and we we call it our flavor. We have our flavor, which is kind of our, I guess, our culture fit, and we are really freaking good at finding our flavor, attracting our flavor, and getting, and those people, by nature, put out max performance. They buy in big time. And I, um, yeah, so I guess I, I never, realized maybe our abilities in that regard. I never realized how much I rely on some of those emotionally-based decision-making processes I Mm. go through and um, in like previous years, just as an entrepreneur. And I realize now, like, those are huge. And I really think that people probably underestimate the value of that. In general, they overthink it a little bit too much. They wait for all the stars to line up and make this, like, have decision be made for you. And um, so yeah, I don't know, I guess, it's a that's a principle i guess that is just i've looked back and i'm like wow that's powerful and a lot of people have
1: that and they may not realize the importance of that so if we're just sling down the idea this is what this is intuition is that what you're speaking to yeah i think we uh
0: i look around at other companies something like that with these um i don't know the decision making process they go through and the way they look at things and i just um compared to how we do it and maybe it's a little irrational maybe it's a little brash but we uh we just collectively really jive together as a team in terms of what feels right making sure everyone feels right about it and going all in on it i look at and we we bootstrapped uh the whole i'm mean, Prince first year on the scene it was a lot of money and we were not planning on it and like, it was just, we were just running. We the to broke around with no plans of going to other conferences that year. And I look back at the amount of money that we personally spend and um, the decisions we made. And I just think, wow, like that was really risky. And I think of people that may have go through that same experience and would have not taken the risk, but we just, um, yeah, like call it intuition, call it, I just think we have this jive amongst us as leaders, as a company, where we just know that's the direction we gotta go, and we trust that, and we make it work. And it's sometimes just pure grit that's getting us through it. We make it work, and I just, um, yeah, no, maybe I just feel this message to other people, as business owners, as vendors in the space of like, trust that, like, if you stop and you just feel, and you look at where you best serve the industry, You'll see it, and you just gotta go for it, man. Like you gotta go for it, and surround yourself with your flavor of people, which is probably way different than my flavor. And uh, but you'll you know find your flavor of people, surround yourself with them, and take the risk and dive in. And that is that's why we've made such a splash so fast is we've we've done just that.
1: When you mentioned earlier getting obsessed with things, what's interesting to me is that that word is used in a somewhat cavalier sense. I was really obsessed. I was really focused. In an entrepreneurial context, if we strip that back, my experience and what I've seen in others is obsessive in a more clinical sense, obsessive in a clinical sense and a therapeutic sense is more um, directly viewed as a negative. Mm. This person has an obsessive disorder, OCD, yeah. as an example. There's some crossover there. These things cannot be necessarily divorced where it's great in entrepreneurship and it's bad in a clinical sense. My experience has been that that obsession can come at the expense of other areas of life. It can come at the expense of mental health. It can come at the expense of a stable identity where I can divorce how I feel about myself from the performance that my business is achieving. What's your experience been like with that challenge? How do you balance that?
0: Yeah, it's been, yeah i like sorry i like even emotional it's getting bit. heavy man yeah i feel you brother yeah 100 percent. and uh yeah i uh that obsession it can be a superpower and it can also be the kryptonite and um bridling that is absolutely essential like i look at our team and i look at my our Says co-founders look at myself, and absolutely push that, uh, probably too far in some ways. And so the um, it's pure in that it's genuine, like we're not obsessively chasing this thing or figuring this problem out or staying up all night or whatever, just to make more money. It's like, no, there's a problem and there's a passion that we have, and there's like we I look at the vision and it's like so clear, and it's like, I just want to be there of this and how this will impact everybody and that is the drive but my word i you know so amongst Justin, tom and i we have there's 13 kids total and all of them are young i have four Justin has five tom has four uh let's see audrey toms is the oldest of all the group i think she's 11 or 12 and so most of us have really young kids as well young families and um when we went into business together, we did it with the intent of like, we've all been just really grinding hard for the last five, 10 years. Let's use this opportunity to back up a little bit and share the load. Coming into Pest share, <laughs> here we are again. And I, I guess all that to say, in our company, family is always first. Our company is our family. Our people are our family. At the end of the day, they all have families and we have families. And when they It is just I think that's why we attract certain people like they know us as family guys, and um just like that is so crucial for us, but I will say that I think we forget that about ourselves too sometimes, and it's it's been a problem, and we've uh it's you will be so much more successful i I just think like what empowers you, my family, mm. my wife, mm. my kids like that's why I do it it's not yeah, I get lost in this vision and stuff like that. Then today, the like all this goes away and they're still there and I'm happy. And so um, I think work less, lean in more to those that are important in your life, people important in your life, your hobbies, whatever, and mm. you will be more successful, period. The, the, you can
1: tame the obsessiveness and get the same result. I'm jealous when I meet people that have a really clear hobby that turns them on and is an outlet. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, what does, what does hunting do for you? If, if hunting was something that you did for performance benefits, it's not, it's you yeah. holistically as a human, your family benefits totally. when you're doing those things. But if we did just look at it from the lens of how your work performance benefits from it, tell me w- what your experience is like.
0: Yeah. You know, I, so we're in the fall right now. It's big hunting time of the year and I uh, usually I'm gone a lot. I, um I probably, I don't know three four weeks between from july to november and i have not gotten at all this whole year and uh, last year was a little rough too and i uh so i went out this last week i we have a, a deer hunt we do every year with my cousin and a couple of buddies and we um i was like i don't think i can go and if i have if I boiled down to four days and i was like screw it i'm going and i got everything in place we have some big stuff going on right now and I uh, have my little Garmin satellite phone thing I can text on. I gave everyone that needed the number, the numbers in case. And I said, I'm just gonna go. And, and for me, so I backcountry hunt, which is kind of unique. So I um, we go into some pretty rough country, um, all camp, everything on our backs, all ultralight. Um, and this year I went totally solo, just the way it shook out. So I went four days totally by myself, backpacked in, to some different spots and and hunted back there and it was one of the most rejuvenating experiences mm. i've ever had i mean you imagine in the sawtooth Mountain range which you look it up it's in idaho it's so gorgeous um big huge you know 10 eleven thousand foot peaks um surrounding me and i'm back in this remote area with literally no one there like few we go like intentionally go to places where people don't go um, takes me hours to pack back into it after hours of driving on a four wheeler, whatever, back to a certain point, and um, very remote. And uh, yeah, I get back in there. I remember a couple of days just sitting on this little knob and looking, you know, glass around looking for deer. And I just was totally alone. And it was coming out of there. I didn't didn't get anything this time around. I didn't shoot anything. But I, I, uh, it was the most fulfilling hunting trip I've ever had. And, um, what I kind of back that point before of like really pushed the edge of, of losing my hobbies, losing my identity Mm, a little bit mm. in the business. And I look at that and I'm like, man, it's, you know, all things I'd be in balance, but, um, that did wonders for me mentally and just clearing out, refining what's, you know, obviously the whole time thinking about work, a lot of it's about work, about family, about life, just really allowed me to stop and refine my focus and and get mentally clear and uh yeah just have to remind myself of this is important this Mm -hmm, is good for mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. and try to just hang on to as much as I can throughout the journey.
1: (laughs) There was a former Google exec that went to manage Yahoo for a couple of years. And there was a quote from her that really stuck with me, which was that burnout is not driven by working too much. It's specifically going over the threshold of neglecting the things that give you life. And that if you're working a lot while maintaining those things that give you life, you have stamina. If you're working 40 hours a week, but you use that as an excuse to abandon the activities that are really meaningful to you, whatever those are, hunting, et cetera, that's where burnout comes from. That certainly is relatable to me. I've had waves of burnout. I've had waves of manic enthusiasm. I will say that for me, the feeling of progress tends to define how I relate to the work. If I'm working the same amount of effort, let's call it 50 hours a week, and we're crushing it, I'm feeling amazing. If I'm working 30 hours and we're not crushing it, I'm upset, I'm frustrated. So progress tends to define things, but this work is about stamina. It's a marathon. There's no huge gold medal along the way. You're, in some sense, it feels binary because you have you know a big outcome you're hoping to achieve. And it's not always obvious what the incremental milestones of progress are. How do you think about progress along the way in this journey, knowing that it's kind of psychotic to ask your staff to have like delayed gratification and to expect no accolades or no pat on the back, even though we tend to treat ourselves that way?
0: <laughs> yeah, man, that's, that's so hard i think um progress ultimately for us is i think we've gone through this phase this past year of like get a lot of interest you get all the interested people but like what people are actually signing up and like we've hit this phase now of like oh wow like we have a sales team and they're selling deals every day and like the traction's actually happening and so i think like at the end of the day like we definitely track progress in terms of just the numbers i mean that's at the end of the day, unfortunately, you go back to your investors or whoever else look at the balance sheet, that is all that really they really care about. But I think there's this other side of progress of where we're going. And I think that when we're winning on the balance sheet, absolutely, there's this very secure feeling of of progress. And um, but there's this other like really exciting, impactful feeling when um, you know the vision starts to be fulfilled and maybe it's being fulfilled in a way of you've developed a new piece of software and the t- and the clients are saying wow this is awesome you know or like your' uh, you know your resin experience just increased a little bit because when you rolled out and you're just seeing s- certain things take traction and start to form and I think our team like is really really sees that and they feel that they see where we're going and that feeling of progression into the future is like, really invigorating and exciting. And I think that like as a leadership team, especially really we talk about that a lot. We live in the vision a lot and it fuels us. And um although like sometimes I step back and like, wow, I can't believe we had that opportunity to have that conversation with mm-hmm. this company mm-hmm. or whatever. And it may not ever lead to any actual business, but the sheer fact that we're sitting here today we had this calculated approach to get this point and we got there and we had that conversation and we see it going this direction is like, whoa, that's cool, you know? And it just, it is totally a feeling of progress. And um, yeah, I think there's just this other side of progress outside of the numbers itself that gotta be careful with for sure, but is really exciting and fuels the team.
1: Mm. Late the good book says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Hmm. I think about relating that to the visionary, the function that they hold. Visionary casts what could be with sincerity, not to blow smoke in anybody's butt, but to really commit to what could be, knowing that, again, there is no permission, there is no promise, but with enough dream and enough belief collectively, that essentially is the seedbed of what attracts the talent the buy-in, the drive to make something from nothing. And it's people like you with that that optimism, man. That's part of what you're bringing here is the optimism to this space. And I want to say thank you. I appreciate the optimism that you're bringing to our industry.
0: Yeah, I thank you. And I think, um, you know, I just encourage everybody to, I'm a big visionary. Obviously, that's part of my role as the CEO of the company. But Every if you're a one-man show you have vision and you it's important to have vision I'd say you need to have vision. I know when I again back up five years ago and I Was sitting at my desk at five in the morning reconciling accounts and QuickBooks for our pest control company like just so not what I was meant to be doing, but what I was doing and I I always had this like desire to grow and desire to be something Mm. bigger never wanted to just kind of stay small but i never understood the concept of that of having a vision and how that can work alongside implementers in the company and operational people and i um quickly really leaned into that leaned into eos and uh and our company and that that vision a is not just me it's led by me but it's totally developed by our leadership team as a whole especially our executive team but really our leadership team all contributes and it is so critical and i think of man i wish i had that back then i look around i see you know, our clients and people here, and I'm like, dream. Like, as one that struggles dreaming, honestly, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm a realist, I guess. I've had to make myself more of a dreamer. As I've lived in that, I allowed myself to dream. Mm. Bigger things have happened. And it, it sounds kind of fluffy, I guess, but like, that was my experience. And I look around, and know that's your experience, and see other people have had big success. It's their experience. Read the books, that's their experience, you know? And so, I just, uh Vision is key. Everyone can have it and you got to have it no matter what size company you are.
1: Let's leave it there. Thanks for coming on, Landon. Thank you. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me.